want to welcome everyone who is here with us live at our North Richland Hills campus. Or if you're watching or tuning in online, I'm glad that you're with us. Or if you're listening later on podcast. We are in week two of a series called Keep This on Repeat. We've been studying in the Psalms, which is the songbook of the Bible. And last week when we kicked off the series, we issued a challenge to every person who's part of the Hills Church. The challenge is this, to read one psalm a day during this series. Now, if you weren't here last week, if you didn't know about that, you can still get involved. You can jump on. Go to Facebook.com slash The Hills Church, and you'll find resources there so that you can, you can follow along and read one psalm a day. And I hope you log that at OneMillionChapters.com as we are striving to read one million chapters of the Bible in this year. After I named this series, Keep This on Repeat, I found something out. Repetition kind of gets a bad rap. It doesn't really excite people. People hear the word repetition and they think of stagnancy. They think of cold routines. They think of ending up in a rut. But let me ask you a question. How many of you have a favorite song? In fact, do this real quick. Turn to the person next to you next to you and just share with them a favorite song of yours, a song that you love. Go ahead. Okay, now I am willing to bet that of all all those songs that were mentioned, every every tune, every genre, every artist, whatever song was mentioned, I bet that there there's not one person who has a favorite song they've only heard once. In fact, it wasn't your favorite song until you wore out the eight track or the cassette tape, until the CD had so many scratches on it from spins in the disc man, until iTunes had logged that you had played that song dozens of more times than any other tune. And if you're a kid and you don't want you don't know what an eight track or a cassette tape is or a disc, just ask an adult to give you a history lesson. Here's the thing. Repetition doesn't have to be a rut. In fact, it can increase our appreciation of and love for our favorite songs and movies and books. And why? Why is that? It's because results require repetition. We established that principle last week, that that results require repetition. And that's going to flow through every week of this series. Now, I learned this foundational principle when I was in college. I studied the Psalms over a semester, uh, took, a, took a class on it, and then I also studied uh, some, some English classes and, and, and a focus on poetry. And it changed how I looked at the Psalms. Sure, these, these are songs that were used in public worship for the Israelite people, but, but they're also song lyrics. And song lyrics, at their most basic, they're a form of poetry. Now, repetition, because the Psalms repeat things over and over and over again, repetition is a literary device. Now, I know you didn't come here for a, for a history or a school lesson, but just stick with me. A literary device, rep, is, repetition is, is one of them. And here's what repetition is at its most basic. It's the planned overuse of something to make a statement. Planned overuse, that's what it is. Well, okay, let, let's set aside poetry and literature for a second, and, and, and let me help you see how we see planned overuse to make a statement more than we think. I went to a, a Rangers game recently. It was my first time to get to go, which was a ton of fun. And I saw Prince Fielder hit a home run. And man, 30,000 of us just stood up and we hooped and hollered. And it was an awesome moment. 
until we remembered the Rangers were still down by eight. But still, it was awesome in the moment. It got me thinking about home runs. Now, the most efficient version of a home run would be if the ball just skimmed right over the, the, the outfielder's glove, just right over the fence. Boom. That's it. That's a home run. It doesn't have to go any higher or farther than that. But that is not how Prince Fielder hit the ball. I'm telling you, he he cracked that thing and it went dozens of feet above the fence, up into the stands. And, and it was a cool moment. But have you ever seen those highlights where somebody hits the ball so hard that it doesn't just go up into the stands, but it leaves the whole stadium? It doesn't happen often, but when it does, ESPN plays it over and over and over again because it is this powerful picture of the planned overuse of force to make a statement. Now, when you when you see a ball that flies out of the stadium, it makes a statement about how strong that batter is. It makes a statement about how high and far and fast that ball is going. It makes a statement about how shamed that pitcher is who just got that ball knocked out. Like it just makes a statement. And and in the Psalms, there is the planned overuse of a phrase at the end of the Psalms that makes a statement. In Psalms 146 to 150, it's often called the Alleluia Psalms to close out the whole collection. They overuse this phrase and they use it at the beginning of the song of their psalm and the end of the song. It's inside the song. It's throughout the song. They say it over and over and over again. And and here's the phrase. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. They beckon and invite and exhort the people to worship God. Now, each week we're looking at a spiritual rhythm. And last week we talked about honest prayer. And this week we're looking into the Psalms to see an example of earnest worship. And I, and I, I wanted to look at these last five Psalms because they're a great picture. So I'm just going to show you the beginning just so you get the feel of this overuse. I'm going to show you the beginning of each of these Psalms. Psalm 146 begins. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Psalm 147, praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. 148, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. 149, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of his faithful people. Psalm 150 closes out the whole collection like this. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Man, they just don't want us to miss the point, do they? Praise the Lord. It is an invitation of beckoning. Now, if you're if you're new and if you are new, if this is your first time here or listening in, I'm so glad you're with us. But I understand that if you're if you're not a Christian and you're not you're new to church, then then praise and worship those words. They can kind of I mean, you kind of understand, you know, praise is is is, is the, the act of, of, of glorifying something, of, of saying great things about it, of claiming that, that it's worthy or that it's worth something. Worship has that that whole idea in it to give to ascribe worth to something, to say that it's it's valuable or that it's precious. But but inside of Christianity, maybe you're wondering, what is what is this whole worship thing about in the Psalms? And even here in Psalm 150, here's here's how I would describe it. Worship is a response to and celebration of who God is and what he has done. 
So in worship, we respond to and we celebrate who God is and what he has done. So here in, in, in Psalm 150, verse 2, it says, praise him for his surpassing greatness. And so when we get a glimpse of who God is, he is a God who is surpassingly great. He is a God who is mighty, who is powerful, who is worthy, who is holy, who is righteous. And so we praise him for who he is. But the verse also says, praise him for his acts of power. Now, creation itself, the world we live in, is a testimony to God's act of power as the creator. He spoke this world into being. And so from the sunrises to the sunsets, from the mountain ranges and peaks to the the, the depths of the ocean's deep, we credit God and give him glory for his act of power as creator, sustainer and provider. And in scripture, we see testimony of him working in people's lives and performing miracles. And we see that in the life of Jesus. These are all acts of power we see in scripture. But even today, we have the ability to share with one another the acts of power God's doing in our lives. To share with one another and give testimony to this is what God is doing in my life. And when you do that, you are praising, you are, you're giving testimony to, you are worshiping God. And so that's what we do. We respond to and celebrate who God is and what he has done. And I I was talking with, uh, I was talking with our, our worship team with, with the, the band and just, Man, as I was thinking about this, this is a call to worship. It's an invitation. It's a beckoning. It's a command. And it would only be appropriate for us to answer that right here, right now. So here's what we're going to do. The band is going to come back out. And some of you who are like schedule people, you're like, what's going on? We don't normally do music here. You're right. We don't normally do that. But how many sermons can you apply a point in the middle of the sermon? There's just not that many. There's not many application points you can do right now, but this is one of them. And we have the ability to answer this call of worship. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the end of Psalm 150 as a call to worship. And then we're going to sing out. We're going to praise him. We're going to fulfill what's been asked of us over and over and over again in the psalm. So let this be your call to worship. And when this song finishes, let's lift up some celebration, some praise. Let's respond to and celebrate who God is and what he has done with our voices. Let's shout praise. Let's clap. Okay, Hills Church, stand for your call to worship, for the reading of God's word. Psalm 150 says, praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise Him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with the strings and pipe. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And everybody say it together, these last words. Praise the Lord. Singing as one.
Amen. That was awesome. Right, go ahead and have a seat. Oh, man, that was good for me. I'm going to preach better now. We should do that every week. That was killer. I'll have to run it by Rick first. I'm not saying it's going to happen. Here's what I know. There are two different kinds of people listening right now. There are thinkers and there are feelers. And that was definitely a moment where the feelers were like, this is awesome. Just like a 10 minute sermon, because normally they're longer than I like. Just 10 minutes and then right back into music. Oh, man, I was clapping. I was singing. I was shouting. That was awesome. And then there's the thinkers and the thinkers right now are thinking, when is the real sermon going to start? Like, what? What's going on? We changed the order and I'm confused and I'm waiting for you to break down the Hebrew for me and conjugate it so I can better understand. Here's the thing. The good news is that earnest worship invites both the thinker and the feeler. Because worship is, worship is not just about how you emote or what you do during a song. And worship is not just about reverence or, or how deeply you ponder the things of God. In the Psalms, we're beckoned into thinking and feeling. We're beckoned into a heart worship and a mind worship. Engaging with God with all that we are. And that goes beyond just music. It goes beyond just the church service. And so open, open your Bibles to Psalm 103. And for you thinkers, the sermon can officially start now. We're going to look at this psalm that will give us a broader, deeper picture of what worship is and what it means to respond to and celebrate who God is and what he has done. And over the course of this psalm, we're going to see that worship is personal, worship is communal, and worship is is eventually global. We'll start at the beginning of the psalm. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, the psalmist begins with a picture of personal worship. All of the all the pronouns, all of the addressing has happening to just an individual. And I think the psalmist knows that worship has to begin on the inside. And that's why the that's why the, the soul is addressed who we are down and deep inside of us, what our heart longs for and desires, because, because what we desire, what it is that our soul most longs for and hopes, that is what we will inevitably worship. There's a scene in the Harry Potter books, which were really popular in my household growing up, in which Harry finds himself standing in front of a magical mirror. And he looks into this mirror, and this orphan kid who's lost his parents ages ago sees his mom and dad. And they're alive. And they're waving at him. And he's, he is baffled. He doesn't know what to think, but he's so excited. He runs. And he gets his friend Ron and, and stands him in front of the mirror and says, Look, look, do you, do, do, do you see them? Do you see my parents? But Ron looks and he says, I'm head boy. I'm, I'm the star of the Quidditch team. Everyone is celebrating me. Well, it turns out they were standing in front of the mirror of Erised. Which is this magical mirror that would reveal to whoever looked into it, they would see 
that which their heart most desired. So for Harry, the orphan boy, he wants to see his parents. He wants them alive. And for this younger brother, Ron, who's off neglected, he wants the attention and the acclaim. I wonder if, if you were to stand in front of the mirror of Erised, what might it show you? Because whatever would appear, whatever deep down in your soul, in your heart is your greatest desire, your deepest longing, that is the thing that you will chase after that you'll respond to, that you will celebrate. It's the thing you will worship. And that's why the psalmist knows that for many of us, for all of us, we really need reminders as to why God should be that which we most desire. And so the psalmist, first addressing the soul, then begins to list the reasons why we should personally seek after and worship God. He's a God who, who forgives who heals, who redeems, a God who crowns us with love, who satisfies our desires, who renews us. But the psalmist doesn't stop there because worship cannot merely remain personal, but it will inevitably become communal. And so the psalmist moves on in verse six. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Now, right there in that verse, you've got a picture of moving from personal, just Moses, to then communal, Israel. And and now the psalmist is about to list the things that we can respond to and celebrate about God as a community. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Now, when we, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. When we begin to respond to And celebrate who God is and what he has done. We can't help but reflect on who we are and what we've done. And this passage acknowledges what all of us know. Communally, as humankind, we are flawed and broken. We're sinful. We have all said things we wish we could unsay. We've all done things we wish we could undo. We've all hurt people in ways we wish we could take back. And we have all offended God and sinned against him and neglected to make him the sole object of our worship. But the good news is that God doesn't treat us like like we deserve. He doesn't always accuse us of all these wrongdoings, but he looks on us and we get to respond to and celebrate the fact that he doesn't treat us like we deserve to be treated. Let me put it this way, because God doesn't treat us like we deserve to be treated, we must worship and respond to him as only he deserves. And this idea of separating our sins from us, let me let me paint a picture for you. Imagine there's a dad and this dad works at NASA. And so imagine that this this dad who works at NASA, he drives home from work. And when he gets home, he sees that his middle school daughter is weeping at the kitchen table. He walks up and says, honey, what's what's the matter? And without saying a word, she just pushes over the paper across the table. 
This dad looks down and it's an algebra test. And she failed it. Not just a little bit of fail, but like epically failed this test. Like didn't study, didn't, didn't work hard, didn't give her best, was hardly even trying when she took the test. It is a terrible score. And, and, and mom undoubtedly saw this and said, you wait right here and you wait till your father gets home and you show him this. And this girl has been sitting there in the afternoon crying and waiting and wondering and getting worried about what dad is going to do when he gets home. And she's just been looking at this proof of her failure. She knows she blew it. She she's just she she's just dumb. She's just stupid. That's what she's starting to believe. Looking at this thinking, I'm I just can't do it. I'm just I'm just a failure. And the dad can read this all on his on his daughter's face. So imagine if this dad leans over and he picks up the test and he says, honey, I'll be right back. And then imagine if this dad, he drives back to work with this test and then he goes, uh, he goes uh, back to work at NASA and then he goes over to where the trash capsules are that they shoot off into space. And imagine if he opened up the hatch and he put it in, took a little picture and then he shut it. And then he videos this trash capsule being rocketed off into the stratosphere. Imagine, then he takes the video and the picture and he, he comes back home and daughter's like waiting, waiting for the punishment for the grounding. And then he says, honey, look. And then he shows her the picture and they watch the video together. And he says, I love you so much. I don't want you to think you're a failure. I don't want you to think you're a failure forever. I know that you messed up, but I love you so much. I want the proof of your failure to forever head in the opposite direction of where you are. I want it to no longer claim you or or label you. I want you to know you're loved and that's your label. You're forgiven and that's your label. And for the rest of time, that trash capsule will head away from you out into the stratosphere because I love you that much. Much. That's just a picture. It's a glimpse of of what God has done for us, that he looked on us and he saw our failure. He saw the way that we screwed up. He saw the way that we wrecked our life. And instead of treating us like we deserved, instead of accusing us and pointing the finger because his love is so great. He would look on us and separate our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. And that's why I think the psalmist uses this metaphor in the next verse. As a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. When we begin to see how surpassingly great and grand and awe-inspiring our God is, we can't help but see how small and fleeting we are. The psalmist continues, The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. Our legacies just don't last as long as we think they do. I'm betting that if I, if I asked you to tell me your grandparents' first names, you could probably do that. But if I asked you to tell me your great, great, great grandparents' first names, just a few generations back, most of us would come up empty. You see, the things that we think are going to last, some of our reputation, some of what we're trying to build, I don't know what it is for you, but it may not last. In fact, the psalm says it won't last like you think it will. I was talking to a preacher friend of mine, and, and he, he's on a teaching team at a, at a really large church. 
he joined that teaching team and, and shortly after a senior minister who had helped to lead that church for 40 plus years retired and, and, and finished his time of preaching in that pulpit. Now, my buddy was in the church lobby a few years after he had retired and he looked over and he saw that that senior minister was coming just to attend on a Sunday. Now, this this guy, by all accounts, locally was famous. He had grown and led and preached to this church as it grew into tens of thousands of people. But as he walked in only a couple years after retirement, my buddy watched as nobody, nobody stopped him and shook his hand. Nobody grabbed him and said, thank you for what you did. Seemingly, nobody recognized him. It was a humbling moment for, for my friend and, and a humbling moment for us to think the legacy we think we're going to leave, some of what we are building right now, some of what, some of what we're striving after, some of the, the, the season of life that you're in in which you're pursuing the business or the portfolio or the bank account or whatever it is that you think you're going to leave behind, it won't last like you think it will. But there's good news in the psalm because it says in verse 17, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Sure, our legacy, what we think we're going to leave behind, what we are storing up, that which we're pursuing may not last like we want it to. But the psalmist gives us good news that God's love will remain with us, will be with us in season and out of season, will follow us from everlasting to everlasting, and by God's grace lead us into eternity in which we will be more fully in his love forever. And for those of us who pray for the next generation, who hope and pray that they would remain in the Lord, there's a word of hope. That his righteousness is with their children's children. That when we walk in obedience and see our whole life as an act of worship, that we pursue him with all that we are, with all our inmost being, and we pursue him in community, which is why we keep worship on repeat as a community, every week worshiping together. When we do that, we have this word of hope that God's love is with us again and again and again. And we see more of who God is and what he has done most fully in Jesus Christ. On the night before Jesus would be betrayed and crucified, he was having a meal with his disciples. This is called the Seder meal or the Passover meal. And it is a meal in which all of Israel remembers and reflects and celebrates their deliverance from Egypt when they were slaves ages ago. And the fact that God delivered them and saved them. So Jesus is with his disciples. and He knows what's about to happen, but he's having a meal with them, practicing this time, joining with all of his Israel to remember God's deliverance. And, and Mark 14, verse 26 says that after they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It was tradition inside of the Passover meal to sing songs. And... Most scholars would say, you know, what's, what's most likely is that Jesus and the disciples, like so many Jewish people, would have been singing the Hallel Psalms, which is Psalms 113 to 118. And I started looking through those Psalms and, man, something just hit me. 
from Psalm 116, words that Jesus himself would have been singing. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol, which means the grave, laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. I can't imagine Jesus would not have been thinking of what would happen to him a few hours later when he would be stripped and beaten and mocked, when a crown of thorns would be pressed into his brow, when he would be made to carry a crossbeam through a riotous crowd who, who would spit on him and yell obscenities at him, and then he would be nailed to a cross, raised up to suffer for hours, and eventually die. And then he'd be taken down and put into a grave. Truly, the the snares of death would encompass him. But Jesus, I believe, knew that was not how things would end. And so it's more than appropriate that he would sing just a few verses later in Psalm 116. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death. Imagine him heading up, knowing what was before him and yet still claiming the promise Jesus, before he'd be crucified, modeled for us earnest worship that we respond to and celebrate who God is and what he has done. And who is this God? He is a God who so loves us, he sent his own son to die for us. He's a God who who raised up the same Jesus so that we might have hope of eternity. He's a God that through the cross of Christ, through the body and blood of Jesus shed for us, that is how he separates our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Through that that payment, that is why he treats us as we do not deserve, regardless of our sin. That is why we have the hope of his love to follow us everlasting to everlasting. It is because of Jesus, the Savior, who gives us this reason to respond to and celebrate, to truly celebrate and escape from death and escape from hell and escape from all of the horrible things that we deserve. But in Christ, in him, we have this love that chases us down from everlasting to everlasting. And here's here's what scripture tells me. Someday that Jesus is going to come back and there will be a moment in which worship will go global. Yeah, we personally worship, we communally worship, but there will be a moment when all the world Scripture says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's why Psalm 103 doesn't stop with communal worship. It goes from personal to communal. And then in verse 19, it starts to go global. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. And then the psalmist pulls it all back in and says, praise the Lord, my soul. You will eventually get to global worship. But the psalmist reminds us you can decide right now. To join in. To join in in the warming up of the voices praising God. That one day in eternity we will worship Him. 
We will live for him. We will bask in his glory as never before. But right now, you get to join in if you want. And that starts right in here. That whatever the deepest desires of your heart, may they never, may they never be anything other than Jesus. And for all the times that they are, for all the times that we reach for something else, for all the times that our deepest desires are something tied to this earth, something tied to our own pride and our own hopes and dreams, may we know that the forgiveness of God is with us, that he redeems us and renews us again to worship him once more. And my question to you is, how can you, how can you worship God personally this week? Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe it's a time of prayer. Maybe it's a time in God's word. Maybe, maybe it's listening to some music. Or maybe it's just finding ways to give God credit for what you do well, for the skills you have, for the things you do. Finding ways at your workplace, with your family, with your friends, wherever you're at, to give God credit and to, to celebrate him for who he is and what he's done. And I hope that you continue to join with us as we worship communally as we all look to the day when worship will go global and we will all respond to and celebrate who God is and what he has done. You pray with me. Jesus, we love you. We are in awe of your obedience to the Father that you would go and take up a cross on our behalf, a cross that we deserve, that I deserved. And we claim the hope of your resurrection. We claim your love from everlasting to everlasting because of your promises, because of how you revealed yourself to us. Through your Holy Spirit, will you help us to be worshipers all week long? But we can only do that through you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'd all stand, and those who are on the response team, if you'd take your places, we're going to have a time of worship, and you may need to pray with someone. That may be a right step for you. To pray about something that's been the deepest desire of your heart that has taken the place of where God belongs. Or maybe you want to talk to someone about Jesus. This is the time for that and there are people here ready to pray with you as we worship.